Welcome to the Sciencepol Energy Podcast. I'm Paul Evans and I'll be talking this time with Luca Franza, a researcher at the Klingendale Institute and lecturer at Sciencepol in European gas markets. We'll talk about Europe's role as a sink market and how low prices might affect coal to gas switching in Poland, Germany and the United Kingdom. We'll also focus on new gas supplies coming into Europe such as Nord Stream 2, who the winners and losers are from this project and the effects of branding gas imports from the United States with names like Freedom Gas. Luca also discusses his opinion on new gas developments in the Eastern Mediterranean and how these new supplies will affect European gas markets. Hello, Luca Franza. Thank you very much for coming on to the Transport Energy Podcast. So we're here to talk about natural gas markets in Europe. But first of all, can you tell us who you are and how you became interested in energy? Yes, well, thank you very much, Paul, for having me at uh, the Sciences Po Energy podcast. My interest in energy is a long-standing one. Actually, I have uh, taken uh, the same course that uh, you are taking right now at uh, Sciences Po only a few years back. And then I became a researcher at uh, the Klingendale International Energy Program. It's a think tank in, in The Hague. And I've been following uh, gas market developments since uh, then. And uh, actually, it's uh, very fresh, but uh, soon, in about a week, I'm going to take on a new position. I will be the head of uh, Energy, Climate and Resource at uh, Istituto Affari Internazionali which is the Italian Institute of uh, International Affairs. But I will uh, remain a fellow uh, here at uh, the Klingendal International Energy Program, and I will uh, keep on uh, lecturing on gas markets at uh, Sciences Po. In the past 20 years, European gas production has, has halved. And this has been uh, you know, mainly driven by reduction in Dutch and in the UK production. And also gas demand is, is uh, well increasing in the past few years, but lower than it was at its peak. You know, one might be inclined to conclude that European gas markets are, uh, you know, less important than they might have been uh, 10 years ago. So can you tell us, you know, why uh, why we should care about European gas markets? Yes, well, actually, uh, it's, it's a good introduction because indeed many people think that gas is dead or doomed in, in the EU, but I think this is incorrect or superficial. Actually, the EU remains very important for global gas markets. Uh, the EU, if it were considered a country, would be the first gas importer in the world. Uh, so it's still remains extremely important from the perspective of the producers. And the EU is also the second uh, gas consumer in the world, again, if uh, the EU is considered a country for a moment. Uh, apart from, from this, from, from the importance of the size uh, of, of the volumes that uh, uh, Europe consumes and imports, Europe also plays a very important role in global gas markets at the moment because it's the world's uh, sink market. So it's playing really a central role in balancing supply and demand. It's the market of uh, last resort and it's providing through this function a key support to global gas prices. Gas prices are very low at the moment uh, worldwide, but trust me, they would be much lower if Europe wasn't there to absorb uh, the, the shock. The EU remains very important for global gas markets. And then in turn, actually, gas remains uh, still a very important fuel for, for Europe. It still provides around a fifth of the electricity that is consumed in, in Europe. Uh, it's very important for its system role because it's uh, one of the most flexible sources of uh, power. 
um, it can play a very important role in uh, balancing uh, intermittent renewables, notably. And uh, also, it should not be forgotten that natural gas plays a core socio-economic function in Europe, being the first source of energy in, in industry. Uh, so very key uh, to our manufacturing power and also uh, the first source of energy in uh, in the residential sector. Of course, the importance of gas varies from uh, country to country. There are some European countries that are more uh, gas-based than, than others, but still natural gas is a key fuel for, for the whole continent. Gas prices in Europe have been very low recently and you know one, one might even conclude from this that there has been some oversupply in the market but indeed it's i say the gas price at the moment is between um three and four dollars per mmbtu at uh, at ttf the price has been relative apart from some spikes it's kind of generally been between those two bands in 2019 and it probably will stay like that in in most of 2020. despite this we're still getting a lot of uh, final investment decisions on you know big lng projects in, in the us in russia and maybe in 2020 in Qatar. Why do you think this is? Why are people still investing in, in these projects when prices are so low? Yeah, that's a very legitimate and, and good question, actually, because uh, usually investors are scared by uh, prolonged periods of uh, low prices. Um, and uh, what we have been uh, seeing in the last months uh, have been very audacious, very brave uh, final investment decisions. First of all, they have been made by large companies with uh, very deep uh, balance sheets uh, that can afford to uh, perhaps take some speculative FIDs. Companies that have big portfolios, so they don't necessarily need to have uh, strong uh, guarantees of demand in order to move to FID because they know that they will always find a market for, for their gas. And I think this is a very important uh, point to realize that the change that we have seen in LNG business models has been a key enabler of new final investment decisions, even in extremely low price uh, environments. With the old business models, it would have been uh, more more difficult. Of, of. But, uh, you know, the jury is still out, uh, of course, if the FIDs that have been made uh, recently will lead to um, commercial schemes that are financially viable. And uh, the jury is still out simply because we don't know exactly uh, what the prices will be when uh, these uh, final investment decisions on uh, certain projects will lead to the first volumes on, on the market. Because, of course, what is important to realize in gas markets, but also in oil markets, is that an FID taken today leads to volumes that are available in the market a few years from now. It can be three, four, five, six years. So, in a way, it makes sense that companies are only relatively looking at uh, current prices, and rather than looking at current prices when deciding on investment, they make projections and they consider prices that might be there, you know, when, when the projects are on stream. So from five years from now. So apparently a lot of investors in the gas industry believed in the story that, uh, and I'm not seeing, saying this in a demeaning way, yeah, but believed in the story of uh, uh, you know commodity cycle dynamics that, uh, yes, now there is an oversupply, but... Uh, uh, given FID scarcity in 2016, in 2017, we might have uh, supply shortages uh, um, 
around the mid 2020s and so prices would go up then and so there would be a window of opportunity for um, investments now so that some volumes can be marketed around the mid 2020s um, benefiting from the high prices that will be present then so this is a, a view a mid-term view uh, on on prices and on supply and demand that these um, large companies have uh, have taken uh, let, let's see if it's going to turn out as a correct assessment it's important to be a first mover in these cases because of course you can forecast a supply shortage in the mid 2020s and then take an fid but then if everyone else also takes an fid you know then uh, your uh, condition for the assessment fades away there is a risk that there's going to be a lot of supply coming on stream at the same time so there's certainly a lot of competition among uh, newcomers in the LNG uh, world and uh, yeah it's going to be very important to respect uh, the schedules of the project and deliver on time. Uh, that's kind of the question to ask from this is where will this gas go? One of the more obvious places is that you know since gas production is in decline in Europe and will be in, in decline again in the medium term then this new gas from these LNG FID projects will to an extent replace that production. One, one more interesting question perhaps is that is whether or not it will influence coal to gas switching in, in Europe. And we've already seen this in the United Kingdom. And indeed, the UK may phase out from coal in the next few years. But do you think this will happen in, do you think coal to gas switching will happen in you know, other European countries that have high coal consumption like Germany and Poland? Yes, uh, well, it's already happening. It's already a reality. It has uh, happened for a few years uh, now, uh, certainly in 2019. You are correct in uh, saying that initially it was mostly something that we would see in the United Kingdom. The return of gas happened in 2016. Uh, We started to see a return of gas. Then mostly in the UK, thanks to the adoption of a carbon price floor, there that uh, favored coal to gas uh, switching. And that return of gas that we started to see in 2016 was very much linked to low gas prices. Back then, there were already the Australian projects coming on stream. So, of course, uh, increasing supply, which leads to, to lower gas prices. And then uh, at the same time, the policy-driven promotion of gas to improve air quality in China was not at its apex yet. So yes, demand was there, but not as much as today. Then there were uh, uh, higher coal prices. There was also the beginning of a CO2 price recovery. So that already uh, redressed um the the merit order in favor of uh, of gas I'm saying that because in uh, previous years the conditions on the power market were very unfavor- unfavorable to uh, natural gas in uh, in Europe uh, it was a bit of a tragic moment before uh, that for the European gas industry and for utilities that had built a lot of gas-fired power capacity. Between 2009 and 2014, notably, we saw a massive demand uh, destruction in uh, Europe. We lost uh, 120 billion cubic meters of gas demand. And we witnessed a very unfortunate marriage of coal and uh, renewables in uh, power. So that really gave us a tasting, in my opinion, of what should be avoided also in future. Investing billions and billions of uh, euros in subsidies that are you know, rightfully given to renewables 
then CO2 emissions still go up because renewables are backed by coal. So that, those years between 2009 and 2014 were really a dark moment for, for the European gas industry. We saw you know, the closure of super modern and efficient CCGTs back then. And this was decried as a catastrophe, you know, and also a failure of EU energy policy. Because your question came from discussion that we had on prices, on gas prices. And and, and this, this digression actually shows that low gas prices in international markets are very key to the competitiveness of natural gas in the European power mix. So uh, it's a digression that actually allows us to make informed considerations on what's happening nowadays, eh, on what happened in 2019, which saw uh, definitely a recovery of uh, gas burn in the power sector in Europe, not only in the UK, but also in continental Europe for the first time in many years. And also it gives us important indications uh, with regard to what uh, might happen in the next months where, as you correctly pointed out, we uh, foresee low uh, gas prices continuing. This combination of low gas prices, relatively high carbon prices, is, is going to be much better in terms of an emissions perspective than, uh, than the conditions we had in uh, the early 2010s. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there is, uh, of course, however, a problem um, because... Uh, of course, for gas in the European power sector, it's very important uh, to be competitive. So in a way, the gas industry needs low gas prices uh, to make a case for, for, for gas and, and to make sure that, that gas is competitive on the market eh, with other uh, sources of uh, electricity. At the same time, however, uh, we know that uh, in order to be economically viable, new gas projects need relatively high gas prices. The long-run marginal cost of a new LNG project is often around $8 per MBTU. And uh, I am uh, wondering uh, whether uh, at $8 per MBTU, natural gas would be competitive in uh, in Europe vis-a-vis -vis coal. So there is a bit of a window there, you know, a, a tight window. Um, okay, so we can't talk about natural gas markets in Europe without talking about Nord Stream 2, of course. This project clearly had some serious delays, but almost everyone thinks that it will be completed. So how will the uh, completion of this pipeline, Nord Stream 2, change gas markets in Europe? Yes, so I I agree with the you know <laughs> almost everyone uh, as you said uh, who believes that Nord Stream two will be completed in spite of the sanctions and all the political disturbances around the pipeline. How will uh, Nord Stream two impact uh, European gas market and supply to Europe? Um, it depends a little bit. So. First of all, Nord Stream 2 has the ambition of uh, rerouting some volumes away from uh, uh, the Ukraine transit system. 2020 is, in my opinion, a little bit outside of the picture when it comes to analyzing the impact of Nord Stream 2, because it's quite likely that Nord Stream 2 will come on stream only at the very end of the year or maybe even in 2021. Um, and it's important to realize this because Ukra Ukraine transit will remain quite uh, high in 2020 um, as per the uh, agreement that has been inked uh, between the Russians and the Ukrainians in uh, December. So it's an agreement that is very useful. It's, it's good that there is 
uh, a commitment to keep uh, high Ukraine-bound shipments in 2020 because uh, Nord Stream 2 will not be uh, available um, for uh, a good part of of uh, this year but then from 2021 onwards uh, ukraine bound transit will go down from the current 1995 bcm per year and then the guarantee of 65 bcm per year in 2020 but it could actually turn out to be higher the actual flow through ukraine in 2020 down to uh, 40 uh, bcm per Year. So first of all, Nord Stream 2, which has a capacity of 55 BCM per year, will um, enable Gazprom to uh, bring down uh, Ukraine transit indeed to the, the 40 BCM to which it has committed. So that's uh, actually the main uh, role in uh, uh, in the next years. But then, of course, some of the capacity of Nord Stream 2, which could be left uh, unutilized eh, by a simple rerouting away from the Ukraine uh, system. Uh, there there could be still some, some capacity, could be used to supply Germany and uh, Northwest Europe, where the import gap is uh, growing. The import gap is growing because uh, Dutch gas production is uh, falling. It's falling uh, quite fast, particularly after the decision by the Dutch government to reduce Groningen production to zero by 2022. And also, uh, as a result of uh, German policies, the uh, nuclear phase-out policy, which will reach its peak in 2022, but also the coal phase-out policy. Because earlier we talked about uh, coal-to-gas competition in the power sector on the base of prices, but of course we have to realize that regulations and policies are also playing a key role in this uh, competition because gas will have to fill a gap uh, left by uh, a coal that is in in demise. So your uh, German gas imports will will go up, and uh, and it's quite possible that Nord Stream two will be used at least in part to satisfy these additional import needs in addition to, you know, the rerouting function that I highlighted uh, earlier. Nord Stream 2 project, for me, has been something that's generated a lot more controversy than perhaps it, it needs to. So could you explain to us you know, who the, the main winners and who the main losers from this, from this project would be? Uh, yes, well, um, indeed, it has generated a lot of uh, political debate and political oppositions. Um, the opposition by the United States is uh, very, very clear and very explicit and, and uh, blunt. Uh, we have seen very aggressive letters being sent to European companies by US congressmen and senators. So clearly, uh, the completion of Nord Stream 2 would be at this point, a bit of a political defeat for for the U.S. I'm not necessarily saying that it's a negative strategically for, for the U.S., because I believe that U.S. LNG follows a market logic or a commercial logic, or it should follow a commercial logic and be sold to the highest paying customer rather than follow politically determined routes. So I'm not saying that when completed Nord Stream 2 will harm American interests, but given the amount of political uh, capital that has been invested to block Nord Stream 2, its completion would be a political defeat uh, of uh, part of the American establishment that has opposed it so vehemently. 
what they have done with the, the sanctions being introduced uh, at uh, the end of 2019 when an agreement between uh, Ukraine and Russia on the continuation of transit being reached uh, in the same hours really irritated uh, European partners. So it's something that damaged uh, transatlantic uh, relations even further in a delicate uh, moment for transatlantic relations. And then if... Uh, Russia completes the pipeline uh, in spite of uh, the US sanctions uh, yeah of course it's it's uh, yeah it's something negative for for the US uh, for the US uh, government but but it's not necessarily the United States that are losing it's maybe um, I mean I, I suppose Ukraine might be one of the losers in this project well, yes and no, in the sense that uh, Ukraine has received uh, strong uh, guarantees uh, at the end of 2019 and the compromise has been reached for five years. So for five years, we are sure that uh, Ukraine will keep on uh, having an important uh, transit role for Russian gas. And this might be a sufficient time for Ukraine to look at for alternative sources of revenue, because I don't think that this idea of sticking to gas transit fee as a lifeline for your economy is a very successful model of economic development, right? So I understand that in a moment of financial distress, you don't want to lose the the, the billions uh, in dollars that transit fees uh, give, but uh, in the longer term, you should diversify. Other uh, potential losers are uh, countries uh, in Central Eastern Europe that uh, are connected to the Ukraine-bound system, which is a very old uh, system, pipelines that links uh, Western Siberia with, uh, you know, the the core of the European market, Slovakia, and so on. But apart from lower transit fees, I don't see very clear losers from Nord Stream 2. I don't, don't believe that it's a project that damages uh, particular countries uh, around uh, Europe. It creates some diversification away from a country that, uh, you know, presented some some challenges eh, in terms of transit, like uh, like Ukraine. And it doesn't necessarily lead to uh, more volumes in the in the longer uh, term from from Russia. So I don't even see it as aggravating uh, our dependency on Russian gas. To be honest, particularly there's intense gas to gas competition at the moment, and it's uh, very likely to continue in the next uh, years. Also, thanks to uh, very good regasification infrastructure and the availability of a lot of LNG in global markets. So Russian gas and uh, flexible LNG will continue to compete. And this in itself guarantees security of supply and also affordability. Even if Russia has a market share of 40% like it has right now, or even higher, around 50%, but the current market conditions and the optionality remain there. We don't actually suffer from excessive exposure to Russian Russian gas. The fact that Russia has a high market share doesn't mean that we are held hostage by, by Russia because Russia is simply a price taker at the moment. And even if they have a high market share, they cannot manipulate the market. So something everyone has also been talking about is uh, is freedom gas, which is the American LNG, which will be exported to to Europe. Um, so can you tell us about about this uh, this so called freedom gas? You know, is it a, something that um, 
we're going to see more of, or is it just uh, you know communications on behalf of on behalf of the uh, American um, president? Yeah, uh, not only president, but uh, broader establishment uh, and also quite some uh, congressmen and, and senators that in the past have uh, sponsored bills uh, that would sell gas to uh, NATO allies. Uh, that's uh, something that uh, we have uh, seen uh, resurfacing uh, a number of times. Uh, and regardless of, of President Trump's personal commitment in this issue. So it's it's a bit broader than, than just the presidency. Um, yeah, so natural gas in the US has been branded politically as a freedom gas. This is part of a broader trend. Uh, on the one hand, there is um, certainly the opposition in the US uh, to the notion that the EU and Russia are interdependent from the perspective of uh, trade. There is a very long-standing opposition to this notion already rooted in the 1970s when uh, European countries and Russia signed the first deals for trade. It was very much part of the distension effort back then and the US already opposed uh, that, that idea. So the idea that uh, freedom gas eh, or US LNG would uh, uh, break in a way these uh, strong... Uh, connection between uh, Europe and uh, and Russia, which uh, is seen as uh, geopolitically uh, advantageous by the US. I mean, breaking the link is seen as geopolitically advantageous. Um, then there is a second uh, uh, rationale or consideration that is being made in the US, which is that uh, by uh, promoting uh, US LNG as a very reliable source of uh, gas, also by virtue of uh, uh, the good political relations between the US and uh, Europe, the US, uh, or I should say US companies, will be able to sell more gas to uh, European countries. Uh, this is only appealing to some uh, European uh, leaders, notably in Eastern Europe. So we have seen some uh, uh, contracts between Poland and Lithuania uh, on the one hand and the US uh, uh, companies uh, uh, or of takers of US LNG on the other hand, which have some political motivations. But for the rest, in the rest of uh, Europe, this idea that US LNG is somewhat superior because it comes from a politically uh, you know, friendly country doesn't sell very well, I have, um, I have the impression. And the third consideration that uh, needs to be made, in my opinion, uh, is linking this whole discussion of uh, you know, freedom... Uh, gas or U.S. LNG being sold to, to Europe with uh, um, the U.S.-China trade wars. China is uh, the world's fastest growing LNG importer, so it would be quite logical for the U.S. to ship its LNG there. But of course, it has been a priority in the last year, particularly for the U.S. to change something in their trade relations with uh, with China. And uh, of course, in the US, uh, they are aware that uh, if they take some uh, measures against the Chinese goods, if they introduce some tariffs, the Chinese are going to strike back. And that's actually precisely what, what happened. China has introduced tariffs that penalize US uh, uh, LNG. So in a way, it's a self-strengthening uh, process because if the US loses China as a, 
as a very important outlet, it needs to market its LNG somewhere else. And then uh, Europe, of course, becomes uh, much more attractive. But uh, my whole take on, on this uh, branding of US as a, as a freedom gas is that it's more damaging than anything else. Um, I'm not sure the companies like it, actually. The strength of US LNG is that it's depoliticized. Precisely its flexibility uh, and uh, its ability to basically go where it's needed, acting on price signals. So if you start to introduce political interference into this, you know, you actually make US LNG lose a lot of its attractiveness. One final thing I want to talk about is is uh, about what's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean. So there, there have been some gas discoveries in the Eastern Mediterranean you know, almost, well, perhaps as, as long ago as, as 20 years ago, but there hasn't been a lot of um, production happening. But uh, more recently, there's been some new developments. So could you explain uh, what's, what's happening there and uh, what the prospects will be in the future? Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, region, uh, also because it's uh, it's close to, to home. Uh, it's uh, just at the edge of the EU. Uh, one of the countries is actually an EU member state, Cyprus. Uh, yeah, there was uh, there were already interesting discoveries uh, around 10 years ago, but then new discoveries have been made recently. Glaucus in Cyprus and um, Zor in, in Egypt are more recent discoveries made in the last uh, three, four, five years. And there's uh, a lot of political interest in this option and also some uh, commercial interest. At the moment, Israel has already signed deals to export uh, gas from Leviathan. It's a very big field in its uh, offshore, in the Israeli offshore, with uh, uh, Egypt and um, Jordan. Egypt is a very peculiar case because uh, uh, it was traditionally a net exporter of gas, then it turned for a number of years into a net importer of gas. Now it's back to a net exporting uh, uh, status, uh, thanks to also its new discoveries, but still it's getting some uh, uh, Israeli gas to, to balance its supply and demand and also its uh, contractual commitments for uh, exports. Jordan, on the other hand, uh, has uh, very little energy resources. So it uh, needs uh, Israeli gas uh, for, for its power sector. Of course, the deal is controversial because uh, the public opinion in Jordan tends to oppose it, but nevertheless, it has been signed. So these are uh, interesting regional developments, but then there might also be something more to East Mediterranean gas. It might be a new source of gas for uh, Europe. And uh, this is quite important because Europe is looking to diversify away from uh, from Russian gas. How could this take place? I think that the most likely scenario is that uh, uh, gas from the East Mediterranean will be shipped to uh, Egyptian LNG terminals. There are two, Itku and Damietta. They're now partly uh, utilized, but there's still some uh, liquefaction capacity that uh, that can be that can be used. And then uh, through liquefaction in these two terminals, East Med LNG, not only from from Egypt but also from Israel and Cyprus, could reach uh, Europe and and uh, actually global uh, markets. And uh, I think that's quite attractive because LNG has this this flexibility that uh, allows a supplier. Uh, to 
have access to many markets. So of course, this minimizes the risk of being too exposed to a market where prices might crash. And you know, Europe is considered a high risk uh, market because of the very aggressive uh, decarbonization narrative that uh, we have in general policy policy uncertainty let me see the other uh, option uh, i mentioned uh, east med gas exports through the egyptian terminals but uh, there is another uh, option which is uh, building a pipeline um, from the cluster of offshore fields uh, between israel and uh, cyprus to uh, Greece and then probably uh, to uh, Italy. So this is the East Med uh, um, gas pipelines. It's a long uh, uh, pipeline, uh, 1,900 kilometers. The uh, partners in the consortium have indicated that uh, they aim to take final investment decision within two years, so by the end of 2022. And they are targeting the mid-2020s as a start uh, date for the pipeline. It would be operated by IGI Poseidon, which is a consortium of Edison. This is an Italian company, but uh, it's controlled by UDF. The uh, DEPA, which is a Greek uh, state-owned. Um, it's quite expensive. Sure, Six, and it's seven, not without eight. its uh, own opposition as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it's being opposed particularly by Turkey that uh, feels that it's being uh, completely bypassed and um, it's stepping up its uh, involvement in the in the region. It's uh, sending uh, drilling vessels offshore Cyprus uh, to conduct uh, exploration activities which are deemed uh, uh, illegal by um, the rest of the international community and it has also sent uh, warships to intimidate drilling by western companies then western companies have sent uh, warships uh, in retaliation to protect their activities also turkey has uh, signed a deal with uh, the government led by Serraj in uh, libya uh, for a water demarcation scheme that would mean that uh, Turkish EZ, so economic exclusive zone, and the Libyan EZ would uh, have a border. So this would basically cut off um, or create an interruption in the continuity of the prospective East Med gas pipeline. So they're creating a lot of disturbance because they don't want to be bypassed. But my opinion is that actually the more Turkey creates these kind of disturbances, the more Europe will want to bypass it. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a little worrying what's happening at the moment uh, in, uh, in the East Med. I think that the main um, obstacle to the completion of the East Med gas pipeline is that we see already a lot of FIDs being taken in LNG. And uh, for projects that would come on stream and that would start delivering gas uh, around the same time that the East Med gas pipeline would be ready or probably even before. So there is a big question mark as to whether there will be a, a new gas market. At, uh, uh, at the sure. Time. So the main obstacle is really a commercial. I think, uh, yes, in the end, uh, there's, there's definitely a commercial challenge that needs to be met. I'm not saying it's impossible, uh, you know, actually the, the diversification interest is clear and also Italy has a very clear interest in uh, uh, becoming a hub for, uh, for gas trade. 
um, it's very interesting for Italy to be able to ship gas uh, northwards because uh, this would uh, reduce the price gap that it has with the Northwest uh, Europe. Uh, through arbitrage, you reduce your, your price gap and uh, the companies seem, uh, you know, very, very interested in, uh, in the project. They certainly have the means to, to do well. Uh, I said the investment needs is quite high, but it's also not prohibitive. Uh, we have seen other projects uh, costing uh, six, seven billion. And, um, you know, at the same time, uh, everyone is talking about uh, diversification and, you know, EU gas production is falling. And then we have a member state like Cyprus with quite a lot of gas in its uh, waters. So the rationale is, is, very, is very clear. It's not without its challenges, for sure. Luca, thank you very much for coming on the, the Salesport Energy podcast. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. My pleasure. Yes, see you next week. And it was a great pleasure. Uh, thank you for uh, having me today. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhodar. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.